Thank you for joining us for Beyond Allyship, the new series from Green Card Voices. I'm your host, Mahalet Astyanaki. I'm an Ethiopian-American living in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I was born in Ethiopia and have lived in nine countries spanning across four continents before moving to the United States in 2010. I'm here to stimulate conversation and help create dialogue by sharing the stories of our communities. This includes immigrants and other marginalized groups. Through this process, I hope our work helps to bridge the gap between these communities by fostering allyship through the stories and experiences shared on this podcast. And I'm Asha Tanki, Green Card Voices podcast manager and a writer of Gujarati descent. Green Card Voices is based in the Twin Cities. And after the police murder of George Floyd, we're pivoting our platform to elevate Black voices and direct our listeners toward resources and actions that they can take today. This week, we're talking with local organizers about the progress we've made and the path forward from here. In coming episodes, you'll hear us connect with different immigrant and cultural communities to discuss what it means to live and act as an ally to our Black communities. Today, we are joined by Joy Marsh Stevens, Jeffrey Aggie, and Tommy Beavis. Joy Marsh Stevens is dedicated to racial and transgender equity work in Twin Cities institutions. She currently serves as director of the Division of Race and Equity for the City of Minneapolis, where she led the city in developing its first strategic and racial equity action plan. In addition to roles with United Health Group and U.S. Bank, Joy has a demonstrated history of working toward educational equity in the Twin Cities, with roles across the Minneapolis Public Schools and St. Paul Public Schools. Jeff Age is a Haitian immigrant dedicated to inclusive economic growth in the Twin Cities. He is the co-founder and COO of Next, a design and technology modernization firm, and the founder of 2043 SBC, a public-private philanthropic partnership approach growing the economy through entrepreneurship. Jeff recently served as program manager at Lunar Startups and as the vice president and economic development chair at the Minneapolis NAACP. Tommy Beavis, an immigrant from Jamaica, is the founder and CSO at Pimento Jamaican Kitchen. The restaurant won Food Network's 2013 Food Court Wars and has been a staple in the Twin Cities ever since. Tommy has previously served as chairman of Hands-On Minneapolis Board of Directors and manager of partnership development at the Points of Light Foundation. He is currently a board member for Children's Theatre Company in Minneapolis. Hi everyone, my name is uh, Jeff Aggie. was originally born in Haiti. Came to America when I was seven. My dad actually came here for political asylum in 94 and then brought my entire family here with us in 97. I was seven years old. I grew up mainly in Tampa, Florida and mostly under-resourced neighborhoods. So people refer to as the hood or whatever in different places in Tampa. And I think when I first came to America, I only wanted to be identified as Haitian. Like I didn't want to be considered black, all these ignorance that existed. And my childhood was in coming to my own with my blackness and, you know, um, identifying with just black people everywhere, not just being Haitian or identifying as black. Uh, that's been kind of my enlightening and in, in my blackness. I went to a historical, an HBCU, a historically black college, a university called Oakwood University, where I majored in industrial psychology. And after college, I started a, a business that focused on strategic planning. So over the past 10 years, I've worked at the intersection of entrepreneurship, race, and economic development. Former VP of the Minneapolis NAACP and economic development chair. I'm a five-time founder, so I've been in the startup space for a really long time. 
Currently, I own two companies that I'm actively involved in. One is called Next. It's written in CXT, but it's pronounced Next. And it's an organization change company. And we help mid to large size businesses as well as startups launch new products, services, and initiatives into the marketplace with customers at the center of everything that they do. I own another company called 2043, and it's a public private philanthropic partnership approach to growing our economy through entrepreneurship, where we're working with entrepreneurs, um, partners, investors, uh, city officials, and other people to grow our economy. I really do believe that by 2043, we can uh, grow our economy in an inclusive way, and that way is in partnership, and it's together. So I'm really passionate about economic development and uh, passionate about entrepreneurship. But most importantly, I live my life as a black man, and I'm passionate about the black struggle, not just in the United States, but everywhere around the world, Um, even right now. I'm heart to go out to you, Mahalit, what's happening in Ethiopia, specifically with the Habasha and the Romo community, knowing that exactly the point that this isn't just the United States issue, but the fight for freedom is global and it happens even within our own countries abroad. And so really lucky and grateful to be here talking with you all and I'm excited to share what I've been through and share what I think could be helpful. I'm, I'm really grateful for that. Just like Jeff, I'm really grateful to being here. So Joy Mar Stevens, I am the director of the Division of Race and Equity for the city of Minneapolis. I've been in this role for about five, almost five years now. The function of our work is looking at how we can advance racial equity and us also transgender equity for the city of Minneapolis in the policies that we adopt and implement, programs that we run, and the services that we provide. And we have the fortunate ability to work across the city enterprise. So in any opportunity for us to center the voices of Black, Indigenous and people of color in the work that we're doing and making sure that the outcomes of the work are intended to reduce the disparities that we're seeing in community. That's really the function of our work and um, definitely looking at the intersectionality of the issues that the city of Minneapolis has the ability to influence. Certainly now there's a significant focus on public safety um, and from our division, um, certainly thinking about public safety, but also thinking about the root causes of racism that we're seeing in communities. So how are we getting back to the structures behind them? How are we really understanding the role of government over time and the ways in which government policy has oppressed Black, Indigenous, and people of color since the founding of this nation? I came into this work haphazardly. My background, my my educational background is not necessarily in uh, public administration. I went to the University of Minnesota for undergrad and graduate school and spent most of my career, quite frankly, looking at how we can navigate systems change and large change management programs, usually, usually using technology as a driver. So most of my career has been in some public sector in the form of education and a little bit at the state level with um, the Department of Transportation, but primarily in the private sector. Again, leading large-scale enterprise change. And the side uh, for the last almost 20 years, I did a lot of work in community organizing um, through nonprofit board leadership um, through Isaiah, as well as some coalition work in the Northwest Metro with a variety of different organizations like Labor, SEIU, Minnesotans for a Fair Economy, some community groups in the Northwest suburbs, Take Action Minnesota. Did a lot of organizing work there in that area around a variety of different issues from criminal justice reform, to reform in education, to corporate accountability, particularly for those corporations that were getting tax breaks um, at the time. And it was in that organizing work that I was doing in parallel to my professional work of change management that I built a lot of relationships that created an opportunity for me to learn about this position in the city of Minneapolis. And
and the chance to come in and essentially do what I'd always been doing, which is leading organizations through large scale change, but doing so from the center of my heart and my life, which is really about racial equity and advancing opportunity for black, indigenous, and people of color. And so I really see my role in Minneapolis as a beautiful marriage between what my where my heart's passion lies and why it is that I get up every day um, and feel like I'm I'm making a, a purpose and my I feel like it's the purpose of my life, but then also my head and my hands and the skills that I have in my ability to lead an organization through really complex things like understanding race and understanding the complexity of race and understanding um, our history around race um, and navigating that towards a shared vision that the city of Minneapolis has adopted around actually reversing the impact of structural racism on communities in Minneapolis, on Black, Indigenous, and people of color specifically um, in Minneapolis. And so it's a even though these are really challenging times, I think it's always challenging to be um, in a black body, particularly as a woman, um, in any system that's not designed um, for my benefit to be leading this work um, in these particular times that we're in with the overwhelming attention worldwide around how we are needing to more clearly center the lives of black people, particularly American descendants of slavery who have been overwhelmingly impacted by structural racism and continue to have some of the worst social and economic outcomes um, both in Minneapolis and around the nation. So centering these voices in this time is both energizing as a Black woman in the workplace, but then also it is can be really difficult to have this level of pressure and attention on the work. Again, really grateful to be here, really grateful to be um, meeting Jeff and to be connecting with you two and to be having this conversation. What do you consider to be your community, like uh, in the Twin Cities and uh, in the U.S.? Like, what do you consider to be your local place? Oh gosh, that's a really great question. I'm I, I feel really blessed to have several places that give me abundance. I've been tied to Minneapolis since I was very young. I moved here from Columbus, Ohio, um, when I was about six years old. My family relocated here. Both my parents worked in um, academia for their professional careers until they retired, and that's what brought us to Minnesota, to the Minneapolis area. So I have always felt a very strong connection to Minneapolis, to people of Minneapolis, particularly the Black community in Minneapolis, which again is where I've had a lot of my ties for most of my life, and um, being in, being very fortunate to be in a role in in my professional work in the city of Minneapolis to be able to be actively working towards positive progressive change that impacts not just um, Black people, but Black, Indigenous, and people of color in the city of Minneapolis generally is is wonderful. I mean, it's great to have that. I think I'm also really fortunate to have. Um, my biological family and that connection as well, which gives me, which helps me both stay connected to my roots and my heritage as a Black woman, but also to my faith. Um, my family has been a big part of my faith and my faith tradition, and so my faith community, my biological family, um, some really amazing friends, um, just really very, again, like feeling very fortunate to have several places in my life which, which feed who I am, help me to stay affirmed in who I am, um, both professionally and personally. It's a really interesting question. I think at different times of our life, we, be we belong to different communities and it could be different parts of the day. We're involved in community differently showing up, but I always show up as a black person. Um, I always, the community that I get the most energy from is the black community. And that's from a Pan-African standpoint. So that's, uh, whether that's with my wife and her family, my wife is originally from Saginaw, Michigan, grew up in Minnesota. She's the reason why I moved to Minnesota, my college sweetheart. 
Um, we have a five-month five-month old son. You know, that's my immediate community, my immediate family, and then from there, uh, just different friends and family, and um, the entire Black community, um, regardless of where. Uh, that person was born or where they were raised, you know, we always, well, I always look at it as the, the difference in blackness is where the boat stopped, you know, the slave ship stopped. And, um, but we're all originally from the same places. And so it's my family, the whole Pan-African uh, landscape, but also uh, I'm a member of many different communities. I'm a member of the startup community in Minnesota, very involved in that. I'm a member in the activism space, not as much as for the, for the during the past two years, I'm involved, but not as deeply as involved as, as I was, but that's part of my community. I'm a member of the where the business and tech space where I hold space there too. So when I think of community and I think of, man, where do I want to spend the most of my time? It's amongst people who've had similar backgrounds as me, people who've had similar upbringings and people who are uniquely focused on obtaining the same future as I am and the things that I'm passionate about. And sometimes that bridges even outside of the Black community a lot of times. So I would say that's my community. Specifically looking at your work within these, within racial justice spaces, within trans equity spaces, is there a particular moment for you where you think about, you know, how the gears switched and how your relationship changed with your, your organizing work and also, you know, how that intersects with your professional work? Was there a moment where you decided to become more involved? Was there a moment when everything kind of changed? I'll say for me, I was always, um, for, for a lot of my life, I was very reluctant to see myself in some, what I considered to be a political role. Um, and I always associated organizing and that level of activism as political. Um, and I like to believe that, I mean, I would do a lot of work that was around advancing equity and about centering the voices of those who are Black, Indigenous, and people of color um, and creating greater opportunity, but I didn't see it necessarily as organizing. I didn't have that in my frame that that's what I was doing. Um, and then um, had was fortunate to have several people in my life who were close enough to me and encouraging me to think about moving into that sort of a space. And I was working, I remember I was working at United Health Group at the time, and it was in a job that didn't necessarily, I mean, it was good opportunity for a lot of reasons professionally to have the job that I had, but there were a lot of just places for when I thought about like who, who it is that I was as a person um, and who I, how I wanted to show up in the world, that that job didn't afford me those opportunities to do that. And so I was in a place of searching and really trying to figure out um, how to more center my values and my form of spiritual worship in the world and was led to organizing as a vehicle through which to do that um, and found that as an organizer, I was able to live out more of who it is that I am in the world because it was really about calling out systems of oppression, working with people and helping people find their voice and the power of their voice in this moment and to recognize that while systems are oppressive, that there is tremendous power in a set of people who are organized around a value and willing to work together to create the political will that forces systems to shift and to change. And that's exactly what we're seeing in the world right now. We're seeing people coming together, marching down the street, demanding change and demanding justice. And it's that level of energy that I believe is what forces government to move the private sector to move. And so even as an organizer outside of the city, now I find that in my current role, I'm just as much organizing inside of the city and bringing people together and helping people build community with one another with the understanding that if we do that, then we're able to actually shift the culture of the organization that we're in and be the sort of city in the delivery of our services and our policies that actually impact structural racism in the ways in which we as a city value. 
So organizing is one of the best tools, one of the best sets of skills that I believe people can have if you really want to create really transformational change. And we're seeing that. We're seeing people organize right now um, and community members coming together and working together in a way that is resulting in a very swift set of changes that are happening, not even just in Minneapolis, obviously, but around the world um, in these issues as we're elevating the conversation about race in a way that I believe would not have been possible if, there, if it were not for people organizing in the streets, in the ways in which they have been, and in the ways in which they continue to be demanding demanding justice. Well, for me, organizing, I guess that's been the structure of my life. I was born into that. You know, my father in Haiti uh, did a lot of fighting for and funding for freedom. And that's a, ultimately how he got to America in 1994. You know, he got on his boat, and one of his boats, my father was a shipping a boat entrepreneur in Haiti, so he owned a number of ships. We were a very prominent family in our village, and um, he was fighting a lot for freedom in Haiti around like 92, 93, 94. And he left one in the middle of it. He got arrested and they couldn't believe it was him because he didn't know how to read and write, but he was a prolific entrepreneur. So they thought it was a mistaken identity and let him go. And so when they let him go, he took one of his boats and navigated it to Guantanamo Bay. Um, I was four years old. I was in Haiti when he navigated his boat to Guantanamo Bay. And he, three years later, he filed for us and we were here. So when we're talking about political asylum and all these things that are happening globally in our country right now, um, that's kind of been my experience of being here. And, and um, activism is in my blood. I, like I said, become, became more awakened to my own blackness, not just as a Haitian person, but as a, a black person, as a member of um, someone from the African diaspora when I was about 14 years old. And that's what led me to go to a HBC for undergrad and um, pursue, I pursued all of my work in business because I don't know. I just think that at the end of the day, power isn't something somebody gives you. It's something that you build or something that you create because ultimately people won't do what's in their best interest. You know, I'm appreciative, I'm appreciative of the work that Joy is doing at the city of Minneapolis. But when I was the you know, VP of the Minneapolis and NAACP, there were all these things that the city couldn't do. And now they, now they can, you know, like there's all these things that businesses couldn't do and now they're doing it because they're afraid of up, an uprising. They're afraid that these things can touch them personally. They're afraid that these, ten, these things can touch them directly. And I think um, how this connects to um, immigrants all over the world is, you know, people who have seen protests in other countries, such as Haiti, violent protests are not a uncommon thing. And that's, you know, it's the voice of the oppressed. The people we've seen in Haiti, people burn tires and people burn entire um, neighborhoods that they live in to, to, in order to make change. And so I think this is America's first time in a long time where, People just straight up got fed up and said, you know, we've been protesting for all these years. We've been saying we can't breathe for all these years. You know, I've personally sat across uh, from the from the governor's table when Governor Dayton was the governor. And, you know, yeah, I'm sure there was so many things he wanted to do. But by the time they had this whole police community relation board situation, by the time they got down to the recommendations, it was completely watered down. There was no real solutions. And so um, me, that's just been the mode of my life. I'm like that in everywhere that I am. I'm like that in the boardroom. I'm like that. Um, I, I, I'm not one to, and you know, Mahalik might knows this about me. I'm not one to argue a moral reason for racial equity because, quite frankly, it's been 400 years. It's been how many years since, um, you know, since the civil rights movement, if you want to call it that. But I like to call it the human rights movement. That think not only have things not changed, but things have gotten worse. Specifically, Minnesota is the second worst. Minneapolis and Minnesota. The Minneapolis-St. Paul region is the second worst in the country for racial inequity. So these things are our reality. And we have some of the most, some of the biggest Fortune 500 companies. And then we have black folks that have 
some of the worst living conditions led in North Minneapolis. You have all these other things that have happened, redlining, you have um, Northern Meadows that's just got shut down. Like we knew Northern Meadows was polluting the area where people live and breathe. We have Northeast Minnesota where people have such high rates of asthma and all these things, most, mostly in, in areas where people of color live. So activism has been a big part of my life, but um, it became a part of my life where I wanted to be in front of the scenes when Jamar Clark was murdered. And since then I've been uh, very publicly involved, um, though I've always been privately behind the scenes. I'm, I'm more comfortable strategizing and I'm more, but you know, at times you need to lend your voice in your face. But ultimately, I just really wanted to be clear that power isn't something somebody gives you, it's something you build or something that you create. Because the likelihood of systems that benefit from our oppression to all of a sudden free us from that oppression, when it means that someone's gonna have to give up a seat, someone's gonna have to give up a position, somebody's gonna have to give up a table, um, I think ultimately doesn't happen until we force our way to that. So. Uh, I'm a big believer in building our own power. Um, I'm a big believer in entrepreneurship. I'm a big believer in ownership. And I think that's how ultimately we create change. Um, right now, you have so many people running for office and it's like, okay, that's cool. That's a cool part of the puzzle. But I mean, ultimately legislation, we've, we've fast 50 years, like, I don't know. I'm not a believer. I'm not as big of a believer in people getting into office as others are. And I don't let that keep me in a state of, oh, well, now we have representation, so they'll solve the problem. Now we each have to do our part to solve the problem, which includes running for office, but it's not a silver bullet. So I think it's one way to do some change. And the fight definitely goes beyond November. I think thinking about a lot of, you know, thinking about sustaining this change is gonna have to go um, beyond what folks see, you know, maybe the election is the end, it, it can't be. Um, we have to sustain this further. And I think, Jeff, your point, you know, about talking about entrepreneurships and businesses sometimes doing something that may not always be what we expect businesses to do. I want to take a moment. We just had Tommy join us, Tommy Beavis um, from Pimento Rumbar. Um, I want to hear from you, Tommy. I know um, we haven't had a chance for you to introduce yourself, but also would love to hear about your entrance into the organizing space, how, you know, a lot of the work that you've been doing in mutual aid and cooperative networks, um, you know, what jump-started that for you? Um, what is your history with this? Would love to hear from you um, on that. Well, I, first of all, thank you so much for having me. And thanks so much for organizing this. And sincerely, my, uh, my, my, my apologies um, for, for, um, for the delays. I'm, we're trying to run a restaurant and trying to be a part of a very important movement. And the reason why we got into this movement personally is because um, this is literally my life, you know what I'm saying? On normal circumstances, I'm like, yeah, you know, let's just try to support from behind. But, um, you know, but as, as you were just saying it, Jeffrey, everybody's just tired. And above all, Jeffrey, I've never said this to anybody before, but man, you're a man after my own heart. The way how you were describing these issues and the way in which we have to deal with them, I'm completely in agreement with you. I do have questions about the, the running for office thing because, yes, it's at all of the options, all, all, all options on the table approach we have to take to this effort. Um, and so what we're doing at Pimento is we're recognizing that we have, we have always been that safe space for our community. And um, throughout COVID, we recognize that uh, we couldn't close because our people still needed to eat. Millennials don't know how to cook. <laughs> you know what I'm <laughs> um, and so we had to keep it going. And, um, and so we only closed for um, Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday because we were just tired, literally. And then um, when, when, the, when um, Mr. Floyd was murdered, naturally, um, 
we were all shaking our heads. So I was like, what do we need to do? How do we um, support our community? And we this uh, and one of the biggest things we did was we decided we're not boarding up because we're not afraid of our community. We are our community. We are our community. Our community represented throughout our, our team, throughout our guests, throughout everything that we do. And so um, we we um, we wanted to ensure that the community was safe. And so we activated even our our food donation system, which is something that just came out of um, one employee um, just expressing the frustrations. Uh, the, the food desert situation and recognizing um, our platform needs at least activated to first and foremost help those who are on the front lines. Uh, so we're like, no, send us yogurt and milk so we can pour people's eyes. And at the same time, that milk we could use to feed babies. <laughs> you know? And that's basically what happened to where we were so overwhelmed where we literally had to close on the restaurant and literally close on the bar and literally close out our backyard because we were so overwhelmed by the generosity of our neighbors, as well as the need from our neighbors. You know, um, and, and so as, as Jeffrey's talking about power, again, it, it's, it's about being able to affect the change that we need and to, to just bring to bear our own resources when we can. Overall, I think at the end of the day, it's how do we empower our community to be able to liberate themselves. Through community relief services, we're, ex we're having conversations with people at the local level, at the national level and at the global level to figure out how can we address issues such as uh, social liberation, economic liberation, political liberation. So when we talk about economic liberation, uh, uh, you know, how do we create 50 more little pimentos where each of those little pimentos can bring their platform to, to the table as well. And imagine the power that all of that can do. When we talk about social liberation, it's about truth and reconciliation, speaking truth and, and also rewriting her story and figuring out the, the, the path forward for all of us. Um, and then we talk about political um, liberation. We're talking about things like what Jeffrey's talking about. We, yes, we need to run for office. Also, we need to find those who are running for office who we need to be supported and not just supporting through the vote, which oftentimes we're not doing anyhow. But how do we support it more sustainably? Creating a pack. Why don't we have more black packs? I like that term, black pack. You know what I'm saying? If, if that's the game, it's how the game is play, being played is through the money. We have the money now. If that, that's the way the game is being played through lobbying, uh, excuse me, where does one sign up for a lobbying degree? We have the resources now. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? If that's the game where you need to call these five people to get to Asha, I call my wife to call Taya to call Asha to call me on my business partner's phone. So we have the connections, you know, uh, and so we have no excuses to not get it done right this time. Minneapolis is the perfect place for it because, again, I always say that we have the brain power, we have the willpower, we have the resources to make that the model city and to show the world how it's done. And we're and um, we're just trying to do our little part and hopefully can amplify the message of others who are doing such important work because we're not starting this. Our our history in this is thirty days long, <laughs> you know. Um, there's so many people who've been working on this and we want to center them and honor them and amplify the message that they have using our platform. So therefore, collectively, it's like raising one power to the power of the power. You know, is what we're, so we're trying to do as we figure this out together. We're new to this as, as everybody's figuring out this new world. And we're just glad to be a part of the journey. Thanks again for having us. Oh, and by the way, I'm sitting here with my business partner and friend um, who's sharing breakfast with me. Let me switch. There's a <laughs> Yeah. And we're right here in St. Paul, right up the street from Pimento St. Paul, at a wonderful little Spanish spot called Manana. If you want some good food, big up to Manana, local business, great food. Thank you, Tommy. Wanted to pivot from that point about, you know, thinking about political liberation, social liberation, thinking about this as more than a moment. But just to kind of narrow it down for you, in this past, you know, couple of weeks, what are some small seeds planted or some small wins that you see a lot of hope for the future in? 
Oh God, um, I think it's just like life where you're supposed to walk through every day looking for drops of petals that life has to offer. And one petal that I can share is today we were on a conference call with some local leaders. I connected my um, former VP and, men and mentor and friend in Washington. One of the things that we wanted to do was talk about how we can bring in the resources. You know what I'm saying? We're not just talking five grand, we're not talking $500. You know what I'm saying? We're talking real money. What do we need to do to fix this problem permanently? And one of the things that we all recognized was, wait, Tommy is the only black person on this call. And the simple fact that they were aware of it is a win because like, all right, let's start by saying we can't be talking about us without us at the table. And one person just isn't enough to speak on behalf of the entire organization, world because at the end of the day, we're not a monolith and the issues are very broad and very vast. I think there's a lot of awareness that's, that's, that, that, that's just being droplets every little year. And, um, and I see a lot more commitment to the long-term sustainable solutions. And that's when I, what, what excites me. I also see like a willingness from the corporations. Long story short, what gives me hope is that nobody's saying no right now to doing what we need to do to solve this problem. Plain and simple. Everybody's ready, so we just need to figure out what we're doing and get it done. For me, one of the things that is giving me hope, as I mentioned earlier, I really firmly believe in the power of organized people to make change happen. I think even some of the points that Tommy raised around how people aren't saying no in this moment, I think a lot of that is because there is an unapologetic commitment by people to keep this conversation going. Um, there is an unapologetic commitment, particularly of Black folks across the spectrum of age, particularly a lot of folks who um, identify as queer, who are out there, who are putting their bodies on the line, who are taking the risk to organize other people and to say that we demand justice in a way that is really creating a lot of that political will and the fact that they are mobilizing people by their willingness to be as bold and to expose themselves to great risk in order to lead in the way that they're leading. I find a lot of hope in that. But at the same time, I feel like that's a space where, where, where Black folks continue over time to put themselves at risk. And so I'm grateful that folks are finding that they have the capacity to continue to show up in those spaces while at the same time seeing that there are so many others who are following that lead and who are calling for transformational change. At the same time, being inside of a city enterprise where there are our elected officials, both in the mayor's office and in our city council, who are responding to a wide variety of perspectives from community members around what change looks like, be it either reform within the existing policing structure or looking for new and different ways to address community safety in a more holistic approach if you look at where the, the city council is. And so that all of that level of creativity, all of that level of interest and commitment to this conversation gives me a tremendous amount of hope that some real substantive change can happen. But I would say just even from the inside perspective of working for the city of Minneapolis, seeing how conversation from within staff is also changing the ways in which people are relating to each other, the ways in which people are embracing a lot of the work that my division has been leading for a few years now around developing people's skills and understanding around embodied anti-racist practices, seeing a growing interest in that type of work and that type of skill building for staff and centering spaces for staff to come together and to commune with one another and to build more of that culture. Because we can pass all the policy that we want inside of the city and not to say that that's not important, but when we're talking about long-term structural change, that has tremendous, tremendous dependence upon how we shift the culture of the people inside of the city of Minneapolis who are ultimately implementing these policies and supporting them. And so seeing that balance between an interest of staff 
to shift the culture of the city by their own commitment to understanding anti-racism and developing those skill sets and building community with each other, matched with elected leadership who are putting themselves out there and willing to be bold and pushing for change in whatever ways that they're pushing for change, added to community members who are also unapologetically rising up. It's that it's almost like that perfect storm um, where you need the people outside creating the political will, you need the people inside of the city enterprise willing to push in to be uncomfortable, and you absolutely need elected officials who are willing to heed the call. So that, that is a perfect sort of trifecta moment that we find ourselves inside of where really amazing change can happen if we continue to push towards through the, um, through the discomfort um, and the long road ahead, because we're not gonna get to the answers that we wanna get to very quickly. So if the people are willing to stay committed to that conversation and to doing that work for the long haul, then I believe something really amazing can happen. Typically, I just want before I say what I say next, I just want to let everyone know that positivity is one of my top five strengths, according to Trends Finders. So with what I'm about to say next may make that statement not be credible, but it's true. Positivity is one of my top five strengths. However, I think hope is a unproductive use of our time. The concept of hope is an unproductive use of our time, especially as Black folk. Like, Black folk have never had a deficit in hope. We've been hopeful since slavery, you know, like whether you've been enslaved in Haiti or Jamaica or, or Trinidad and Tobago or you were colonized in Africa, we've never had a deficit in hope. You know, Black folks created Negro spirituals while we were being oppressed by the God of the people whom were enslaving us. You know, we created soul food when we were given scraps to eat and survive on. So the idea of hope and singing and, you know, hope is not a something that this situation is going to change or not. So for me, I think it's an unproductive use of our time. The reason why we're in this situation, let's be honest, is because we're in a once in a lifetime pandemic where no one can do anything but listen. You know, you can't go anywhere. You can't escape it. You, you live your life on the internet. You can't escape Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, the internet. There's no sports. There's no, there's nothing to distract people from the issues that people are facing. So that's why this issue is relevant. Secondly, the issue is relevant because now a lot of people are afraid because of the uprising that originally happened. And then of course, we know white supremacists started burning people's stuff and all that. But originally it, there was an uprising and um, white America is afraid of uprisings because now those things touch their neighborhoods and touch their property and touch their livelihood. So that's why we have this. When, when, when the pandemic is over, I doubt that all these people will still be you know, as enthusiastic about the changes that we're talking about. When sports comes back, I doubt that people will be paying attention to it as much because what has really changed in the past three months that hasn't been here for the past 30 years. And so for me, uh, what I more focus on during this time is our ability to build power, is our ability to build sustainability, is our ability while individuals are saying they wanna make change, finding mechanisms to hold them accountable. So at 2043, when COVID first happened, we immediately launched a survey in partnership with Hack the Gap called Entrepreneurs Access to gather data about what entrepreneurs are going through, specifically also Black entrepreneurs. And that data is being used by Deed and other ecosystem partners. We're um, going to be working with an organization called Forge North and Greater MSP to better help um, find ways to um, work with the 180 companies in Minnesota who have signed pledges to be better moving forward that are part of Greater MSP. So. Um, people who have raised their hand and say, hey, we realize that there's a problem, we have to do better. Um, so now we're gonna use a data-driven way to figure out how to help people be better, right? Um, and then building our own institutional power, whether that's creating a pact or funding our own. Um, yeah, we saw the great news that there are over 40 black women who are running for office, which is a really great thing, but 
running for office is one thing, but how do we fund those people who are running for office? So how do we, uh, while people are feeling generous in this finite moment, how do we channel their generosity and build lasting institutional power? Because I have zero hope whatsoever in, um, in politicians. I have zero hope for, like literally there was nothing stopping those same people that are doing the, the elected officials that are making the decisions now, there was nothing stopping them from making that decision a year ago. Nothing, like if it was about the right thing to do, you know what I mean? Like these businesses who all of a sudden Juneteenth is a holiday, there's nothing that has changed except for one more black man was unfortunately murdered on the list of thousands. And so for me, I hope isn't something that I pay attention to in this time. So Jeff, kind of, I just want you to dive a little deeper. And what do you say our community and our listeners can do to keep this beacon burning? Sure. I would, you know, utter the words of Martin Luther King in his last speech. We have difficult days ahead of us, but we've been to the mountaintop. We see, we've seen that it's possible for the changes that we thought were impossible to be made. And so it's us truly building power right now. Like, it cannot be just about asking people to do the right thing. Once again, it's only working now because of the conditions that exist. Unless COVID pers persists over the next two or three or four or five years, because it's gonna take one to five years to actually change structures in an efficient and effective way. Unless COVID lasts for five years, which I don't think it will, it might last another uh, uh, 12 to 18 months, we ourselves have to build, within, have to build that power, so yes, Right now, there are individuals who are interested in giving. This is the time where we create a mechanism for what that looks like in the next five years. Right now, there are a lot of companies who have said we're willing to make a change. This is a time where we hold them accountable and actually have a plan on how they're going to do that. So that two years from now, if when, when all this has died down, they have already made those commitments. It's potentially creating super PACs that are Black-led and or are wealthy white people who um, are saying, hey, these are issues that we find and we want to give this money to black folks to run a super PAC so that we can get the officials who have our interest in mind to be elected. Uh, because ultimately, it's good for business. Right now, what all these businesses are doing, let's be honest, is good for business. What the politicians are doing is good for politics. Like, who wouldn't want to do, while well, your city is burning, who wouldn't want to find a response to help people calm down? Like, that just makes no sense. Why wouldn't you do that? And so there's the incentive. The point that I'm saying is right now, there is clear incentive for people to make change. What happens when that incentive is gone? Because you have to ask black folks to continually place themselves in real harm and danger for three, four years worth of time. That is extremely difficult. So for me, it's we have to take this moment to build power. So if you are in the political space, build political power. If you're in the business space, this is an opportunity to potentially gather more investors who now, who you're more visible to now than you were ever before. So while the iron is hot, build power so that we can sustain that moving forward. Because history has shown us, this happened during Rodney King, minus the COVID. History has shown us people will move when their fire hits them, but that fire can't last forever. It just hasn't. So um, build power while it's here. So then when it's not here, we'll at least still have power to um, influence some of the changes that we want to see. So as you know, we are hoping to investigate how immigrant communities can be better co-conspirators. There were some big moments calling attention to this from immigrant-owned business becoming hubs for mutual aid like yours, Tommy, during the protests. When you personally think of how individuals can better stand in solidarity, what are your to-go-to thoughts? 
And I can start with you, Tommy, if you're still there. Yep, I'm still here. I would say one of the things that I'm sharing right now to people is when you're donating, instead of running to Target to go buy whatever it is you're buying, consider buying from a business of color. Yeah, go to, to find some, some African stores, for example, buy your products, go and, and buy some rice and come drop off. You know, so therefore you can invest in those businesses owned by color as well. You know what I'm saying? How do you invest in the overall community? Additionally, what I also say is as much as I enjoy feeding the hundreds or the thousands of people daily or weekly for a white community that nobody ever talks about, you know what I'm saying? But how do we figure out how to ensure that we're solving, especially around hunger and food desert permanently? But again, these are all short-term, near-term solutions. How do we solve these things permanently? We know that immigrants are very entrepreneurial by nature. Black people are very entrepreneurial by nature. So how do we invest in that entrepreneurial spirit to where they're bringing the solutions, they're bringing their creativity to a global problem that we're all trying to solve together? Thank you. Jeff, I will let you go next. Tell us if there are resources for our listeners. How do they find these immigrant-owned businesses or these small businesses to go and support? There's like this thing called MN Blacklist that has a lot of the Black companies on their website. There's also this Minnesota Black Business Facebook page that has a lot of the Black businesses. To answer the question that you had before, one of the best ways immigrants can empathize that I think, um, like I said, I grew up in an immigrant home where my parents didn't understand, you know, just how African-Americans or Americans descended of slaves that, are, that grew up here have stereotypes about black immigrants. Black immigrants or immigrants in general come with a stereotype about African-Americans that's usually media generated as, you know, these things. So I think one thing that immigrant people can do is ask themselves, why did their family come to America? And if their family came to America because of political asylum, or if their family came to America in search of a better life, then ask those immigrants to understand that the African-American people or American descendants of slaves are still in the place of their oppression. So while you as an immigrant left your place of oppression to find a better life, this group is still living in the place of their oppression. So they are you, but they're still living in that current country. There isn't, let me go to this other place for a better life. We have to co-create that better life together. So I think that's the way that immigrants can empathize with that reality is like, this is the place of people's oppression. It's just like me being someone who's not from Minneapolis, it's a lot easier for me to move around in Minneapolis as a black person who's not from Minneapolis than it is for a black person who is from Minneapolis. Because the black person who's from Minneapolis, this is the place of their oppression. Whereas in Tampa, a lot of things was difficult for me to do because I grew up in Tampa. I'm little Jeff that everybody knew, right? So when you're in a different place, that's not the place of your oppression. You can do better and you can do things faster because you're no longer psychologically tied to that particular oppression and you're, and you're no longer in your place of trauma. So the empathy is to recognize that a lot of the people that we're criticizing are in their place of trauma. And so how can you help liberate as, as you have been helped by being moved to this particular country? I think it's the best way that um, immigrants can um, empathize as well as now begin to work together and begin to see our global condition for human rights. As long as we continue to call it civil rights, it'll seem like, oh, that's a little different. No, but um, people that are born and raised here, as well as people who have had the privilege, like myself, to identify as African-American and not just quote unquote Haitian or where I'm from uh, globally, uh, have a human rights issue. And that human rights issue looks, looks very similar in our countries and other places. And so we're the same. We just need to come together and, and, um, and work together more. And I think we're doing that now. Black Panther, let's go. That's right. 
As an American descendant of slavery, one of the things that I really value about this moment is that it is a unique time in our in the world where people are really coming to an understanding of the plight of ADOS people in this nation and the plight that we have been experiencing, the level of oppression that we have been experiencing through structural racism for over 400 years. I invite those who don't identify as, as an American descendant of slavery or don't identify as indigenous people to this land that we're on to hold that moment and hold the preciousness of that moment. I think certainly echoing some of what Jeff had said around deepening an understanding, we know that if we can create equity and prosperity for American descendants of slavery, for American Indian people, then we benefit everyone. The opportunities that are coming because of the work and because of the sacrifice that ADOS people have made, and certainly the sacrifice and the genocide that American Indian people have experienced and are still looking to have some form of reparation, some form, some form of racial healing, absolutely agree with how are we supporting businesses? How are we making sure that if we're in community in spaces where people are talking about what can we do in this moment and how can we be responsive in this moment to look around and say, are there people from these communities that are experiencing the greatest burden of structural racism? Are they present? Are we, are we, are we hearing from their voices in this, in this specific moment? But again, caring for those who are most marginalized and most oppressed benefits everyone in the end. I think uh, to wrap up quickly, I was just saying uh, from a black business standpoint, I've been asked on numerous occasions, why don't we have like a black business mall um, or, you know, our own Amazon, our own Etsy type of deal. And it's like, yeah, you're right. These Facebook groups, I feel as though they're more personal for the black business owners that sort of have this black business conversation and promote our little black businesses to others, uh, to, our, to ourselves. But I think we need to think broader than that. I think we need to think global. The economy is flat. The world is flat. How do we ensure that we're providing access to us and to our services and our goods? And I think we, we have an opportunity. I completely agree with you because a lot of people want to support, want to be there and want to give back. But again, it's kind of hard when there isn't that platform. And so, like you said, I think this is the time. And Jeff's point, you know, we have to build power. So these are little things that we can start doing to build that power, to build the power platform for everyone to be able to, you know, be able to find it easier. I mean, it's easy to go and find a target, but, you know, if you have to work extra hard to find that one small immigrant-owned business, you know, everyone is on a time crunch. And so I think we have to dive deeper and we all have a lot of work to do. So I just, I would just love, while we have both Joy and Tommy here, I'd love to hear about um, the Pimento Summit. Um, I would love to hear about you know, this public-private partnership, being able to gather the community into one space, a handful of leaders, and what your thoughts are on, both from Joy, from you know, a city perspective, but also I tend to view your work as an underdog in a large institution. Um, and then also from the business side, you know, Tommy, all of the work you've been doing um, in mutual aid, what do you see coming out of the Pimento Summit? Is it possible for you to give our listeners a little bit of background on the summit about how it came together and what you think of coming out of it? Sure, I can give the background on it and I'll let Joy talk a bit about um, what was said at this session. And Asha, you can also share your own experience too. So the whole concept behind it was we know that um, after the 10 weeks, we, we saw this initially as a disaster. My background is in corporate responsibility, which includes disaster mitigation. And I know that within 10 weeks, all of the spotlights will be on, the camera will be 
Captain Cruz will be gone. So how do we use that moment to bring together all the right leaders to the table to help address the issues? So one of the things that I loved about the concept is we didn't want, for for example, the mayor to be like, well, it's not my fault. It's city council's fault. Um, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, oh, 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 good, good. City council, you're right. You're um, You know, and city council can be like, oh, it's not my fault. It's the community's fault. We're like, oh, oh, oh. I have a question, community. That was an opportunity to bring bring everybody uh, together to break bread and we brought together 100, 150 of the most connected influence, influencers in the Twin Cities, at least initially to break bread, to heal, because now we're still seeking healing. So we spend time focusing on healing um, to where we can build a relationship and the trust, to where we can start doing the real heavy work. And, it, and we know that it, this was just the start of it. We've already had two. One was just purely focused on healing and obtaining. Um, and then we had the second one, which is more about the, the, the dialogue. Um, and so we, there's a lot more work to do, but we let joy and what was discussed at the tables too. Um, yeah, so I will offer that uh, the Pimento Summit was, first of all, a really great way to get to know Tommy. I had uh, met Tommy once in the hallway. <laughs> I love it years before. Um, and so it was a good opportunity to get to know Tommy and to work with him. I love the idea of public-private partnership. I believe that the best way for us to really tackle this question around what does community safety look like, what do we want policing to look like in our city, is going to require an all-hands-on-deck type of conversation. I was really very much um, impressed by the model that Tommy had imagined for the summit in the sense of creating space for people from a wide variety of sectors to really begin to wrestle with these questions around community safety and to begin to imagine their role and their opportunity inside of this work because it's going to take everybody at the table to really be able to tackle these sorts of issues and the understanding that these issues are so intersectional. It's not just about what does government do, but it's also about what can educators do? What can the private sector do from the, from the form of corporate America? What can people who work in health and wellness do? What can the media do? I mean, all of these different spaces for these conversations are exactly the type of way that I think about what community engagement looks like from the city on these topics. And so very, very grateful for Tommy really modeling that and, and creating that space at Pimento, at Pimento um, for us to come together and to begin doing that work. I'll say from my perspective in the city, not speaking for the city, but for my division of race and equity, we're um, working to help understand and help build an approach that's going to help us as a city understand more about what community safety looks like. And so being able to witness and to collaborate with Tommy, but also to be able to witness his vision come to life helps to inform some of the work that we're doing. And it's actually created some follow-up conversations. It would not have happened if I had not been there at Pimento that Saturday. So really, really grateful for that level of modeling. Really, really grateful for the idea of individuals bringing whatever resource they have and offering it up. Now, not everyone is going to have a restaurant and a backyard and a space for folks to come together to feed them, but everybody, I believe, has something to offer in this moment. Um, and, and the example that Tommy shared is exactly the sort of example that I would hope that we as a community 
in Minneapolis can all aspire to. What is it that I can do? And even if what I can do is have a, have a conversation with my neighbors around what I think community safety can look like and commit to sharing that information with my city council member, then, then that's an act that people can take. But inviting people to really be inspired by those sorts of examples and saying, what can I do? And being willing to offer that voice because we're going to need, we on the city are going to need to hear from people across the city, no matter what ward you live in, in this moment. Um, and so the city of Minneapolis, particularly in Black, Indigenous, and people of color communities, really needs to work, continue that work of rebuilding, of building trust, because trust doesn't exist, um, and understandably so. And so organizations like a Pimento Kitchen and those who have trusted relationships in communities can do a really great job of engaging people based on that place of trust and creating those trusted spaces to have these conversations. And then we can find ways to work collectively to share that information and then work together um, to actually manifest collectively this future of community safety that we all aspire to. Where everyone in Minneapolis, regardless of who you are, can live in a community where you feel safe, where you feel as though there is a measured and reflective response to the challenges that are facing you, that we are celebrating community assets where they exist and looking to strengthen them the best way that we can, and having a supportive government system that's responding to people in the ways in which people want to be responded to and and everyone is able to be treated and feel as though they're going to be treated with a sense of humanity. Thank you all mm -hmm. so very much. What are you personally doing right now to move the issue and what would you like your audience to know about what's coming up and you know for you any messages that you want to amplify? I'm personally building upon over two decades of work advancing equity and thinking about all of the different strategies and all of the different lessons that we've learned along the way on how we actually keep people engaged and mobilized and energized around really complex issues staying at the table and wanting to be committed because these times are very, very challenging. And the work is not something that I know Jeff had mentioned earlier. We're not going to solve for this tomorrow. We are making investments today that are going to impact generations from now. And so, but we need to stick to the work and get out of this moment where we can get out of this while people are paying attention, while pocketbooks are open and people are willing to write checks. We absolutely need to, um, to maximize the moment. And so that's what we're doing. We're organizing internally. We're organizing externally, getting people fired up around working collectively with one another to solve these issues on a personal level outside of work. I'm also wrestling with the question of reparations. There's no better moment than this moment that we're in right now to have a serious conversation about what reparations look like. It's a conversation that always seemed impossible to have in the past. How do we begin to organize people in our community to begin to build a narrative around what reparations looks like and how we can work collectively together to realize that for ourselves and for our children. Our company next is our tagline is our best world. So we're helping organizations figure out how best to meet the moment while also having people be at the center of what they do. I think for our listeners, a lot of people, when they think about racial equity and business, they think of charity and they think of things that are going to harm your profit. But McKinsey and Company, which is the largest management consulting firm, their latest research in 2019 have shown that organizations that are racially and ethnically diverse at their leadership level perform at 32% above the average in terms of their profit. And so doing the right thing by people is the profitable thing to do. So at our company next, we're helping organizations do that. And that's www.ncxt.co. In our company 2043, literally, I created, founded the company 2043 from my work across the entrepreneurial ecosystem, seeing all these silos that exist and recognizing the lack of trust. And so it's a public 
public-private philanthropic partnership approach. And so if you are a, if you find yourself part of a public-private or philanthropic organization and want to connect entrepreneurs or you want to connect to, the, to your counterparts, we're doing that with 2043. We're going to be launching a digital platform at the end of August called Marketplace. That makes it really easy to do that. It's going to be called 2043 Marketplace. And that's 2043, the number 2043.co. But personally, MK, you know this, I'm just a connector. I love to connect people. I love to encourage people. I love to bring people together. That's really who I am is just bringing people together to solve those problems. Because ultimately, I think if we're together, we're e it's easier to move forward and, and everybody can do their part. I just want to continue to encourage, if not we're connecting with me at all, or if not connecting with anyone on this panel, I want to encourage if you are immigrant listening to this to please do your work of undoing internalized oppression. White supremacy is not just something that's happening in America. It happens in our countries back at home in Africa. It happens in, Indi in India. It happens in Asia. It happens all these places where people are using skin bleaching to light, lighten in their skin so they could look more European. The most, most of the world has been colonized by a European country. And if you are an immigrant that has come from a place that at one time or another was colonized or American media is a big part of your place, you too have issues with internalized oppression. So the best thing you can do is deal with your own internalized oppression. And that's what I did. That's what I, the work that I continue to do with myself. And that's how you're able to make change moving forward. So I would say if you can't connect with any of us, that's work that you can do on your own. Phenomenal as always. Great panel. I think where we're trying to take things is to ensure that we can um, support those who are doing the work on the ground, bring the resources to them to help finally solve this. We don't need any more speeches. We've already had great speeches. We are going to be doing some big work, big things with the Pimento Relief Services, cooking up some good things there. Our goal, again, is to help to drive the economic liberation, whether that's through creating 50 more pimentos if we must, whether that's social liberation, helping to rewrite her story and helping to keep the culture strong and also help us heal. And then the other part, again, is the political liberation where we can support those who are helping to um, lead the cause across the world. So we're just excited to be a part of it. And we, thank you. and we think that everybody has a role to play because our purpose is much greater than we are. And if each of us is playing the role that we can with what little resources we have, it's basically that thousand points of light all over again. And then Tommy, before I let you go, if people are interested in, you know, joining and helping out, how can they get involved with what you're doing? From a grassroots level, we've been having people donate products. So they have been dropping off goods to Pimento and you can do so at any time between one and four and we'll ensure that those who are in need will get it. We have people who've been donating funds on Venmo at Pimento Kitchen. But overall, I think what we're looking for is we have to build ourselves up through economic liberation and our overall freedom is about us playing our part and doing what we do best, which is build, you know, and so whatever we can do to support others who are building, whoever is building, reach out to us. We're there. We're trying to figure out who's doing what so we can support you. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel or make this about us. We're making it about those who know what to do. I just love this time when there's so many smart, young, bright, bold as hell young people who are out there who are not afraid to speak the truth, who are not afraid to do what needs to be done. And I'm like, yes, it's about time. We have the resources now. Let's make many of us that model city. Thank you all so very much for taking your time and speaking your truth. We really, really appreciate you guys being our first, first episode. Again, thank you. Congratulations. With that, thank you for joining us for the first episode of Beyond Allyship. 
we are extremely excited to release this new series. In the following episodes, we will be engaging with different immigrant and cultural communities, breaking down the various ways we can stand in solidarity with our Black communities. We will be diving into crucial topics surrounding how we can educate ourselves against anti-Blackness, how we can unpack internalized oppression and internalized supremacy. These questions and more coming up on this new series, Beyond Allyship.